A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I had my chance, that I could make those people dance, and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver with every paper I'd deliver. Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride, but something touched me deep inside the day. The music died. This is our American stories, and you're listening to Don McLean's American Pie. And the song was written and inspired in large part by the death of his favorite artist, his hero, Buddy Holly. And on this day in history, Buddy Holly was born. And we love music here on our American stories, and we love history. So what a perfect history segment. And as always, our This Day in History segments are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to study all of the fine things in life, from philosophy to politics to history to art to sports and, of course, music. And music is such a central part of all of our lives, and I wanted to spend some time on this life. And I start first with Don McLean and that song, Because McLean wrote a piece for CNN recently commemorating Buddy Holly. And it's always interesting when artists write about other artists and how they affect and impact them. And here's what he wrote. Many years ago, I performed at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, which was the last stop on Buddy Holly's final tour. He was killed in a plane crash in 1959 that also took the lives of singers J.P., the Big Bopper Richardson, and Richie Valens. By this time, Buddy Holly and I had a pretty long history together. The concert that I performed at had all the old members of his group. Donna, who Richie Valens wrote a song about, was also there. Peggy Sue, who Buddy Holly sang about, she was there. The Picks were there. They sang background vocals on Buddy's records. As well as singer Tommy Alsop, who claimed that years later he got his wallet back from the crash site. Unfortunately, some fans at this show were selling crash site photos, which I thought was in dreadful taste. I think the prospect of the National Transportation Safety Board delving into the crash again, which might mean exhuming bodies and all the rest, would be in similarly bad taste. I think there's a real reason why we say the words, rest in peace. Buddy Holly would have the same stature musically, whether he would have lived or died, because of his accomplishments, which... In retrospect, nobody, and I mean nobody, not the Beatles, not the Rolling Stones, or anyone else, can beat for these reasons. By the time he was 22 years old, he had recorded 50 tracks, most of which he had written himself, and each of them, in my view and in the view of many, was a bona fide hit. Buddy Holly and the Crickets were the template for all the rock and roll bands that followed. No rock and roll records can touch, rave on, think it over, not fade away, Peggy Sue, and many, many more. But he was also a sensitive balladeer. 
which people often overlook with songs like Moon Dreams and True Love Ways. As a paper boy, I cut open the stack of papers on February 3rd, 1959, and saw that picture and that Buddy Holly had been killed in a plane crash. The next day, I went to school in shock. And guess what? Nobody cared. Rock and roll in those days was sort of like hula hoops, and Buddy Holly hadn't had a big hit on the chart since 1957. Nor had the others in the plane crash. Americans in those days were always looking ahead. Death was not lingered over. We'd had enough of that in World War II. Death and grief did not go with the exuberance and bright colors of the 1950s. Since then, we have embarked on what I call the American death trip. One simply has to look at the slew of autopsy shows on the television and the endless regurgitation of Marilyn, Elvis, JFK, deaths, and details to get to my point. Furthermore, because of the ever-growing psychological power of the media, we seem to think we can reach back half a century and touch things as if they are real. We live in a virtual, nostalgic world because of all of this. Fortunately for all of us, Putty Holly's music is forever and forever young. And all any young person has to do is listen to it. And his life will be changed permanently. And I don't think you get a better obit than that and an obit written decades later. Like Don McLean had had that in him. And of course... American Pie is also, in a way, that obit, that eulogy. And we'll get to that a bit later. And a bit about his life. He was born Charles Holly in 1936 on this day in history. He died in that crash on February 3rd, 1959. But he was born in Lubbock, Texas, to a musical family during the Great Depression. And as we learn over and over here in our American story, so many of the great musicians trained themselves. They did not go to music school, not Irving Berlin, straight up to Greg Allman, Miles Davis barely, Frank Sinatra, not at all. The music school they attended was life. They played and they played. Sinatra's was the Tommy Dorsey band. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Buddy's brothers. We're going to hear Buddy's music. And we're going to hear more from Don McLean himself as we dig into American Pie one more time as we open this, this day in history and close it on the same exact note. And that is Don McLean's tribute, which I don't think many of you knew was a tribute to Buddy Holly, but it was. And so when we come back, more on the life of Buddy Holly. Again, born on this day in history in 1936. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to our website, Our American Network, hit the topic section, go to This Day in History. I think we've got 150 of them there. And enjoy them, download them, and share them with friends. More about Buddy Holly after these messages. Still you tell me maybe that someday will all Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye, yes,
And you're listening to Bruce Springsteen's version of Not Fade Away by Buddy Holly. It played a central part in his shows. He would never play She's the One without playing that. Because that's the inspiration for that song, one of his great songs on his breakout album, Born to Run. And that's the impact Buddy Holly had on so many people. And on this day in history, Charles Buddy Holly was born in 1936. And again, the impact you're about to hear that Buddy Holly had on many musicians. Well, it's remarkable, but none more than Bruce Springsteen, who, again, as you're listening to this infamous Capitol Theater concert in 1978, played live in New York City, which really catapulted him to fame. No artist was more impacted by Buddy Holly than Bruce Springsteen. And now we want to dig into the life of Buddy Holly, as we talked about earlier, but we've now discussed the influence he's had on people like Don McLean and Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, if you've ever seen his documentary. He goes on and on about Buddy and the influence that Buddy had on his music and his writing and his band. So let's take a listen to Buddy Holly's brothers, Larry and Travis Holly, sing and talk about the early years of Buddy's musical life. It'll be so sweet when all I guess Buddy got most of his musical talent from mother's side of the family. My father was loved music. He couldn't carry a tune in a bag, but he would uh, insist on us playing. And Most of the songs that uh, we sang, of course, were Baptist songs and uh, all old, golden oldies, we called them. And uh, they still use them at the, at the Baptist church that we go to. They had an amateur contest and... Mother and Dad always wanted us to take Buddy because he was so cute, you know. And he was, um, he had a little violin, but he couldn't play it. And it just messed us up, we thought. <laughs> but anyway, we took him out, and he did sing a song, and I think that might have been what caused us to win the contest. The name of it was, Have You Ever Gone Sailing Down the River of Memories? And it's an old song, but he sang it's so cute, and... But whenever we was playing, well, he'd fiddle right along with me, and Travis was playing the accordion. But we had grease on his bow, so you couldn't hear him. <laughs> and uh, we thought we was playing a good trick on him. He didn't ever know the difference at that time. Well, initially, as I remember it, Mother and Dad gave him violin lessons, which he he didn't care for at all. And later on, they got him a steel guitar. And that was about the age of 11, I believe. And he said, no, I don't want a guitar like that. I want one like Travis has got to. <laughs> he would borrow mine. Wow, his dad couldn't carry a tune in a bag. I love that. I got to keep that in my head the next time I hear someone who can't sing. So Buddy made his first appearance on local television in 1952. And the following year, he formed the group Buddy and Bob with his friend Bob Montgomery. In 55, after opening for Elvis Presley, Holly decided to pursue a career in music. He opened for Elvis three times that year. His band style shifted from country and western to entirely rock and roll. In October that year, when he opened for Bill Haley and his Comets, Holly was spotted by Nashville scout Eddie Crandall, who helped him get a contract with Decca Records. 
Holly's recording sessions at DECA were produced by Owen Bradley. By the way, a big, big name in country. Unhappy with Bradley's control in the studio and with the sound he achieved there, Holly went instead to producer Norm Petty in Clovis, New Mexico, and recorded a demo of That'll Be the Day. By the way, we've heard that over and over again, where an artist gets trapped in one system by one company, by one guy. The artist doesn't get to be himself, and he has to flee that person so he can make the music he wants to make. Petty became the band's manager and sent the demo to Brunswick Records, which released it as a single credited to the Crickets, which became the name of Buddy Holly's band. And again, That'll Be the Day was a big hit, and you heard it going out in the last segment. And in September of 1957, as the band toured, That'll Be the Day topped the U.S. bestseller chart. Its success was soon followed in October by another major hit, Peggy Sue. The album Chirping Crickets, released in November 1957, reached number five on the UK album charts. Holly made his second appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show in January of 1958, and soon after, toured Australia and the United Kingdom. In early 1959, Holly assembled a new band, consisting of future country music star Waylon Jennings, famed session musician Tommy Alsop, Carl Bunch, and the three... Musicians and the singer embarked on a tour of the Midwestern United States. After a show in Clear Lake, Iowa, Holly chartered an airplane to travel to his next show in Moorhead, Minnesota. Soon after the takeoff, the plane crashed, killing Holly, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, and the pilot, in a tragedy later elegized by Don McLean as the day the music died in the song... American Pie. So bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, this'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die. And here's Don McLean talking about the day he found out that his musical hero, Buddy Holly, had died. I was delivering the paper, and I cut open the paper, and I saw that, you know, three three uh, rock and roll stars killed in plane crash, and my man, Buddy Holly, had been killed. Stars Richie Valens, J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson, and Buddy Holly died today with their pilot in the crash of a chartered plane. Was my favorite favorite artist really when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, and I was heartbroken when he, he died. Their small chartered plane crashed in a lonely farmyard about 15 miles northwest of Mason City. The cause of the crash was due to inclement weather conditions. I was in junior high school, and I said, Gee, Buddy Holly died. They said, So what? You know. They didn't care. Buddy Holly was old news anyway by 1959. My record deal was finished. I was on my ass. 
And I had one more album to make, and I was making it, and I said, well, I'm just going to go for broke and do do the things that I want to do now, even more than the first time. And suddenly I was bringing Buddy Holly back to life. I was giving Buddy Holly a new life, and he was giving me new life. I was giving Buddy Holly new life, and he was giving me new life. And this is, again, the power of storytelling, folks. Something that affected him all those years before. It just hit him, and he had to write about it. And again, another story about a guy trapped in a record label that didn't let him write the music he wanted to. We learned this about Chris Stapleton, too. Our favorite here, and and just a burgeoning sensation, because no one's sure how to categorize him. Blues, rock, he doesn't care. He's just playing music. He's finally getting to do what he believes in. So again, on this day in history... Charles Holly, Buddy Holly, was born in 1936. And we heard from some of the greats, and I don't think there's a better singer-songwriter than Don McLean. He's written four or five of the greatest songs in American music. And then Springsteen, I don't think there's a bigger influence in the history of rock and roll in this country. And Buddy Holly became the primary part of his set before She's the One, and a primary part of everything he did. The underlying beat of the booming sound of Max Weinberg. And so on this day in history, we celebrate the life of Charles Buddy Holly. More after these messages. And as always, this day in history is brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. The day the music died And they were singing Bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, This'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die. They were singing, Bye bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, This'll be the day that I This is Our American Stories, and we love telling great business stories, sports stories, and anytime anyone's got a great passion in life, we love to get into that too. Check our segment on Wayne Bisbee's dad and the legacy he and his son built together. Started out with a bet between a bunch of guys doing some marlin fishing in Cabo in 1988. Six guys ponied in $10,000, and they had a little competition for the sheer heck of it. And, well, 1,000 people ponied up 100,000 to pop in the last Bisbee adventure for marlin hunting and marlin fishing. And that's what Americans do. We love our pastimes. We love our hobbies. And in a minute, we're going to be talking to the senior vice president of Fan Experience. And what a great title, uh, the Atlanta Falcons, because as you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about food prices and the stadiums and sports and how the middle class is getting priced right out of a great American experience and pastime, the ultimate American sport, professional football. But before we do that, we've got to take a listen to Jesse, who's got some new shower thoughts. Shower thoughts. What the heck does a professional golfer do when they retire? Most people retire and then take up golf. 
All of the best skipping rocks are in the middle of the lake. The fact that we know chameleons even exist just proves that they're total failures. If you break the laws of man, you go to jail. If you break the laws of God, you go to hell. If you break the laws of physics, you go to Sweden and get a Nobel Prize. Generally speaking of plants, if you consume it and something good happens, it's medicine. If you consume it and something bad happens, it's poison. If you consume a plant and nothing happens, it's salad. If you consume a plant and the walls start melting, it's a controlled substance. <laughs> the only difference between a regular dot and a polka dot is the absence of other dots. When I die, I want to see a list of stats of everything about me. How many steps I took, breaths, total distance walked, and so on. Maybe even a highlight reel of all the best shots I've made tossing things into trash cans. Or a visual chart of exactly how many chickens I've eaten in my lifetime. Wow. That's a lot of chickens, man. Getting another set of teeth would be much more useful at age 60 than age 6. Is it ironic that only one company is allowed to produce the board game Monopoly? <laughs> if I was a cop, I'd drive an unmarked car with honk if you're drunk as a bumper sticker. <laughs> if you see a bald eagle at the zoo, you're looking at the American symbol of freedom in captivity. <laughs> if you step on people's feet, they'll open their mouth just like a trash can. How funny would it be if farting was just as contagious as yawning? One-third of marriages are now from online dating, and that number is only increasing. That means that computer algorithms are starting to breed humans. You could also argue that computers lead to human reproduction, and therefore more computers. That means that we are the vector by which computers reproduce. Jesus coming to earth, making friends, dying, and then revealing himself to be God's son is like the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss. Rap songs that reference dollar values won't adjust for inflation, and the references will sound cheaper over time. <laughs> I think the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz might have kept the flying monkeys around to mask her terrible smell, since she could never take a shower. Ah, you cursed rat! Look what you've done! I'm melting! Melting! Shower thoughts. <laughs> Great job, Jesse, as always. And now we switch over to Mike Ohms, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience at the Atlanta Falcons. And Mike, before we start, I just want to give you a great big shout out and a congratulations. You guys landed the Super Bowl. Talk about that, the year. Let everybody know how exciting that must be, not only for you and the Atlanta Falcons, but for the city of Atlanta. Yeah, you know, I uh, appreciate that. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, you know, we had that yesterday uh, from the NFL owners meeting that uh, indeed we won the, the rights to host Super Bowl 53, which is in uh, 2019. Uh, our stadium opens in, seven, in 2017 next year. So, uh, you know, when you, when you build a stadium the, the way that we're building it, um, you build it to host uh, not only your home teams, but, of course, these kind of world-class events. So adding to the College Football National Championship and the NCAA Final Four uh, to have – a, uh, to have a Super Bowl coming back to Atlanta is great. And to your point, it is a public-private relationship. Uh, we can't do this without the city 
the infrastructure the city's put in, the commitment that the city's made, all the hotel rooms and the other entertainment options really just make Atlanta a world-class city in that regard. And, and uh, we're, we're excited to host the United States, if not one of the world's biggest sporting events for sure. So, uh, to know, it was, it was a big day yesterday. It's fantastic. And, by the way, you have a world-class aquarium, too. And it's interesting that the Home Depot co-founders both have a lot to do with both of those things, and it shows us all how private business working alongside a city can literally change the world. Uh, Mike, it's really stunning. Hey, let's talk about uh, this this title you have uh, because I love the I love the title fan experience, not customer experience. Uh, but before we dig into that, we love asking people about who they are and where they're from. Mike, just a bit about your uh, your childhood and also what you thought you were going to be when you grew up and what you're doing now, and then and whatever the dissonance is between those two. So, uh, so okay, that's a question I didn't expect. I grew up in uh, Rhode Island, as we used to say in Rhode Island, we're the biggest little state in the Union, uh, yeah. the 50th in size, but, you know, mighty in strength uh, and fortitude. And then um, I actually thought uh, my dream was to get into sports, doing uh, play-by-play, uh, basketball, football. I just had this incredible love of sports when I was a kid, and went to uh, Syracuse University, which you can't watch an NFL game or a national television broadcast and not continue to stumble across folks who went to Syracuse. Ted Koppel, my goodness, that's Ted Koppel's alma mater, right? Yeah, Ted Koppel, Mike Tirico, Bob Costas, Dick Stockton, Marv Albert. Oh, my goodness. The the new guy doing Monday Night Football, Sean McDonough, Ian Eagle. It goes on and on and on. It's unbelievable. So for a variety of reasons, after college, uh, as I graduated, I chose not to do that, and I found my way down to Disney World, um, I had been there a couple times as a kid, was fascinated by it, and, um, you know, started at the kind of the, the entry-level host, providing, providing guest service, right? Not customer in Disney's language, it's guest. And um, had the opportunity to, to run into an incredible, fantastic run of leaders, um, some of whom now are the president of Disneyland and the president of Walt Disney World and the president of Disney Cruise Line that I worked directly for, learned at their knee what it means to deliver fantastic and develop fantastic guest experiences and uh, after 21 years at disney got a phone call from arthur blank the owner of the atlanta falcons at our new mercedes-benz stadium and uh, our atlanta united soccer club which which launches next year and he said if we're going to do something different in the world of sports when it comes to fan experience we need to hire somebody from outside of sports we need to hire someone from a place like disney i got a phone call and now next thing you know i moved to atlanta to try to uh Cal Barther and, and this great leadership team uh, attain the vision, the bold vision that they've set forth to create an unparalleled stadium experience and an unparalleled fan experience. So um, I'm, I'm honored to be part of the team. Well, and you know, and, and lucky you for having great mentorship and mentors in your life. Uh, we talk a lot about that here on this show. And behind every great man and woman are all kinds of people who helped along the way. And those of us lucky enough are smart enough to seek out mentors and seek out corporate and business environments and actually educational environments that breed good character, that teach folks the lessons they need to learn in life. When we come back, we're going to talk with Mike about, well, what we had originally planned to talk to him about, which is food prices in the stadiums and that stadium and fan experience and about what may be one of America's great, great products. We love talking about music here on Our American Stories, and that's one of them. But my goodness, sports... We love our sports, and my goodness, we love our professional football, not only here on Our American Stories, but across America. This is Lee Habib, more with Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience of the Atlanta Falcons, after these brief messages. 
This is Our American Stories, and we're talking with Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience, the Atlanta Falcons. And we just learned about his trek through his life, a journalism degree at Syracuse, where, my goodness, not only being surrounded by excellence in that department, but, my goodness, what a sports town. What a great college town for sports. Jim Beheim's remarkable basketball teams, a pretty serious football team. By the way, Jim Brown, the great NFL running back, is a graduate of Syracuse. Not only one of the great professional football athletes, one of the great NFL backs, but also a remarkable lacrosse player. I've just been reading about Jim Brown's life, and we're going to be doing a feature on him. So, so Mike, you, you end up in Atlanta in this job. Talk about what, what is at the core of, of your function. What are you guys trying to do? What we, what we were alluding to before uh, the break was that the price of so many concessions uh, at so many professional games make the parent feel either poor or guilty, and then they whip out that charge card, and then when that bill comes in the mail, they go, my goodness, I don't know if I can do that again, and I know I speak for a lot of families. Uh, talk about that discussion that you must have been having uh, with senior management at the Falcons. Uh, sure. You know, when, when we go to any sporting events, you know, even myself, right, as a fan, food and beverage is part of the experience. It's a day out. It's an evening out. It's entertainment, um, whether it's a concert or, or, uh, or a sporting event. And in all of the research that we do, that becomes an important part of overall satisfaction. Um, is food and beverage or, or concessions, depending on your, your point of view. Um, as we further looked at the research, it continues to score the lowest uh, amongst all of the different elements that comprise satisfaction on game day. And to no surprise, as you just mentioned, pricing's at the top of that list. Um, you know, the, the, the prices feel like we're being gouged. Yep. Uh, it's not affordable. If You know, if I'm just buying a, you know, a beer or a or a soda and a hot dog for myself, that's one thing. If I'm coming with my, my wife and kids, well, now I'm you know, footing the bill for all five of them, and you're right. I mean, you, you get a ridiculously small amount of, of food and beverage for what seems to be an egregious price. We looked at that and said, wait a minute, there has to be a different way to execute this. There has to be something that can be done to treat this in a more fan-friendly fashion. And from Arthur Blank, who prided himself as he founded the Home Depot based on the customer service ethic uh, that he holds so dear, he challenged us to think of a different model. And uh, Rich McKay, who's our president and CEO, you know, really continued to push the envelope and said, how can we charge prices that aren't just fair, but eye-poppingly appropriate for fans, not compared to what you would pay in an arena or a ballpark or a stadium, but compared to what you'd pay in a local quick service restaurant or at a convenience store. Mm-hmm. No reason to charge $5 for a soda, $4 for water, $6 for a hot dog. We all know we're being gouged. So we decided to do what we called fan-first pricing, um, which, uh, which will start to sell products in a, in a level that you've never seen really in a stadium. $2 for a hot dog, $2 for a soda that's refillable, $2 for, uh, you know, for chips, $3 for fries, $3 for you know, for a, for, a, for a hot pretzel, $2 for popcorn, something where you can actually now get a hot dog, fries, and a Coke uh, and get that for your entire family of four for under $30. Wow. Uh, has, has received, listen, did we know we were doing something great for the fans? Absolutely. Did we expect the national viral aspect of this to take off the way it did? Well, 
it's exceeded our expectations. And, you know, we're happy to talk about it because we think we're doing something great for our fans. Well, and you are, Mike. And I'm telling you, that, that experience you have as a dad, and you know this, we've all been there in our lives. We can't afford something. And we know the price is ridiculous. And those little kids are looking at you, Daddy, I just want a soda and a hot dog. And so you do it. And you can't. And you're so mad. And you feel violated, actually, at that point, like $4 for water. You're just going, that's just so wrong on so many levels. And I'm a fan. So they're taking advantage of my fandom, Mike. I think that's what really cuts to the core of that. That's right. You know, we're not the only industry where, where that has happened. I mean, go to the movie theater. I've been complaining about movie theater prices since I was a kid. Here I am, 30-plus years later. Movie theaters haven't changed their pricing models, nope. right? So, so this isn't our, – our approach wasn't to try to save the industry. We are by no means magnanimous at that level. Right. right? That's for uh, – there's other <laughs> business models. There's other business considerations that each team, each stadium has to consider. And, and I don't – I'm not trying to put myself in their shoes. For us, it was all about our fans, our Atlanta Falcons fans, our Atlanta United fans – and what what uh, what the way we approach this is anybody who shows up at the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium, uh, which is when this will take effect when when the stadium opens in 2017. Any customer, any fan, any guest becomes our guest, whether they're there for the SEC championship game, whether they're there for the Final Four, or whether they're there for the Super Bowl. So these are the same prices that will be charged regardless of the event, whether it's a high school football championship or the Super Bowl. The prices I just talked about, uh, which will apply across our entire menu, where the food will be priced in a very fair way. And if we go get a local specialty restaurant that charges $7 for a you know, pulled pork barbecue sandwich at their restaurant, you'll be charged $7 in our stadium. There's not going to be a stadium markup unnecessarily applied. And it'll apply to every event, every type of, of, uh, of guest or customer or fan that shows up to our stadium. So we, this, is, this is applicable beyond just the Atlanta Falcons. You know, Mike, it'll be interesting to see if people actually buy more product and in the end that there's not necessarily a dip in your revenue because people will order that extra dog or buy that extra soda. I think that'll be, you know, do you have any preconceptions about what that might look like and how you're making up the revenue in other areas? I mean, ultimately, you're in a business to make a profit. Those athletes don't come cheap. My goodness, those coaches aren't cheap. And you're in the talent business in the end on the executive level and on the athlete level. You know, talk about that and, and, and what your projections are given this, this new change. Yeah, so I'll talk about it through two perspectives. One is from a revenue perspective, if you look at the way, and we'll focus on the NFL, right, the TV contracts that get struck with the direct TVs and, and NBCs and ESPNs um, flows a significant amount of revenue to all of the NFL teams. Your sponsorship revenue is also a big chunk. Your ticket revenue is a big chunk. At the end of the day, food and beverage is a relatively, really small amount. So the try to gouge fans when it really doesn't amount to be a significant part of your revenue was no longer, was not a driver for us. So therefore we could really focus on the fan aspect of this and not the quote unquote lost revenue. So that, that's one point. The other piece is um, where we do expect to see an increase of demand. Uh, we've had to model a variety of different um, of options because to just sell these products at low prices, and not contemplate how you lay out the entirety of your program uh, to ensure that lines move quickly, food can be processed quickly, but you can maintain high quality is critical. 
So in other words, every stadium could just simply lower prices. But if they see a 20, 30 increase in demand, they won't be able to handle it. And now fans will be frustrated. You bet. I wish you just pulled a $5 hot dog because I don't want to wait 20 minutes. In right. <laughs> so my Disney background is, is making me think of the discipline that Disney uses to try to ratchet seconds out of every single transaction because seconds end up equaling minutes when you compound them over thousands and thousands and thousands of fans in a small amount of time. So the amounts of points of sale that we're putting in the new stadium, which amounts to be more accessibility across all three main layers of the, of the stadium, 100, 200, and 300 levels, increased by 65% as compared to the, to the current home of the Atlanta Falcons, the Georgia Dome. And um, the way in which we're doing soda is uh, uh, fans will be able to get their sodas, but we're, we're not going to fill sodas behind the counter. You'll be able to go fill it yourself at um, self-service stations at spread throughout the building. And if you want to get a refill, you want to top that off before you leave the building, go ahead and do it. it, it we're not going to charge you a subsequent transaction. We're not putting an RFID chip in the cup to validate are you allowed to get one <laughs> refill or many We've really tried to focus this on the fans, but at the same time, we have to design the building to be as efficient as possible because that's the, the number two issue for fans. Our lines are too long, right? So we can't just address pricing. We've got to address all the pain points, variety, quality, length of lines, and as we've already announced, we're hitting affordability uh, straight on. You bet. And we're talking to Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience the Atlanta Falcons, and just one, if you could answer in maybe 30 or 45 seconds, Mike, and I know we're putting you on the spot, but Arthur Blank is the co-founder of Home Depot, and my goodness, we did an hour on him and Bernie Marcus a, a couple of weeks ago, and the customer service ethos of Home Depot, and it was just astonishing, and how much does he drive this this ship in this respect, Mike? How much of this comes from Arthur? It, it, shows, it comes straight from the top. This is not a... In, in, uh, an idea that germinated from the ground floor and had to go up to Arthur. This is the challenge Arthur set forth. It's the reason, quite frankly, I'm in the role that I'm in, is that's how important he thinks of the customer experience, of the fan experience, that he wanted somebody brought in to help work across the entire organization to ensure every single aspect of the stadium experience was either optimized or, quite frankly, in the case now of food and beverage, reimagined to really drive fan value it doesn't compare us to hopefully other stadiums, but compares us to those great customer experience organizations, you know, to the Apples of the world, to the Starbucks of the world, to the, to the Disneys of the world. And that's what we're aspiring to do. But it does come directly from Arthur's bold vision. Yeah, so much does. The leadership uh, means everything in life. And you were lucky enough to work at Disney uh, where there was great leadership. And then under the, under the tutelage of Arthur Blank, one of America's great businessmen, Mike, we look forward to coming to Atlanta and catching a game. We're in Oxford, Mississippi. We're not far away. Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience, Atlanta Falcons. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Oh, thanks so much for having us. I appreciate it. You bet. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show. Love, death, and especially family and developing healthy relationships from the start. That's why we have a regular segment with a marriage coach and not a divorce lawyer. And today we're talking to a medical doctor in North Carolina who sees a big part of her job as coaching parents and children about, well, all kinds of things that aren't necessarily related to being a medical doctor. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein, known to her patients as Dr. Rose, has been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16 years. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all that. Dr. Rose, if you don't mind us calling you that, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I'm so happy to be here, but I really enjoy being called Dr. Rose, especially my patients. Fantastic. And one day I'll have to come myself. I'm a parent. I think I'm doing a pretty good job. But you know what? I think we all wonder what we could be doing better. And uh, I think I need some coaching and maybe my kid. I think we could all use a coach. Tell us about Dr. Rose. You know, let's pick up where we last spoke. And we're going to be running a, a long series here so the folks listening can maybe hear whatever problems they're having with their, their children or with parenting uh, sort of characterized in our discussions. So let's talk about some of the kids you've seen recently. And let's not use specific names. I want to respect the privacy of the children. But let's talk about the archetypes and the types of behavior uh, as, as, as a way to lead into this conversation. Let's give us one instance of one child, their problem, and what you did to resolve it. Okay. The first one I thought about when, when um, we started thinking about uh, prototypes was this little boy, and I, I sort of like to um, kindly and uh, with affection label them. But he was, he's a developing genius. And this guy was in first grade when he started coming to me, uh, and he was failing first grade uh, probably within the first three or four months, and mom had completely lost control of this young man. Mom couldn't figure out why this was happening. The older uh, teenage sister uh, was relatively easy uh, to, to guide in school, uh, but this young man, even though he was six, was a complete handful, and they were looking to expel him in school and said that he, is un- uh, he was unteachable, uh, and therefore he could not learn and could not learn how to read. And, and Mom uh, went so far as to tape him with her, uh, with her phone uh, to show me what he was doing at home. Uh, he was having absolutely breakdown, terrible temper tantrums whenever he would not get his way. And he would have a sort of form of this in school. But he would know that he had to have limits in school, so he wouldn't go too much over the lines, just so, so, sort of push the limit. And so I would ask Mom, so does he seem very smart for specific things? And she said, well, yeah, like, you know, to program the, the cell phone uh, or the computer for, to pick up words that he hadn't seen before, uh, either uh, in vocabulary or by sight. He seemed very sharp, but he wasn't able to control his behavior, so he was behaving 
more and more poorly, which was leading for him to do very poorly in school. Uh, then uh, I told mom a few things to do, and they were kind of simple. They would restrict the, the TV, uh, send him to early bedtimes, uh, make this room very simple so there weren't any distractions. And they're not necessarily punishments, but they're sort of consequences and, and things to take away uh, what would get in the way of her voice and his and, and, and his attention. Mom looked at me like I uh, was a criminal, maybe federal criminal. And she said, this is a very unusual way to treat your children. And she went back home, and she came back the next time and she said, everybody agrees that this is like kid torture. I mean, like not giving them, allowing them him to watch TV. What kind of, what kind of discipline is that? And I said, just bear with me. What will you lose? What, will you not be able to conjure up something magical from the TV. Just bear with me. Be very patient uh, with what I'm, I'm uh, guiding you with because this behavior, and this is important, this behavior did not appear overnight. This behavior will not go away overnight. It will take much persistence from you. So we continue to work on mom and not necessarily on him. And he would sit there very quietly, and I'd always be observing uh, this young genius. And he would always be watching me, listening, sitting quietly. I never saw any of those behaviors mm. in my practice. And I was like, you know, I would think for all the world, unless I know, know you, that you might be fibbing to me, and you're telling me some something about some other child, or that you're trying to... Uh, uh, sort of overstate what's going on in school and at home. But I did see that videotape, and so I trust you. But don't you think it's peculiar that he is able to behave for 30, 45 minutes at a time and just listen to what you and I are saying? This is fascinating, and we're going to go into a break here and continue on the other side, Dr. Rose. And for anybody who's had that kind of kid, and I think we've all known it, and by the way, if any of us know that kind of parent or are that kind of parent who has a real hard time disciplining our kids, uh, we're talking to Dr. Rose Fernandez-Stein, and she has a lot of experience, as though a medical doctor, with coaching parents how to handle certain types of kids and their behavioral problems. And it's not often a medical problem, and prescription drugs are not the answer to so many of these problems. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And the story of raising our kids, well, it's a story we, we tell often here. And more with Dr. Rose. After these messages, I want to find out what happened to this boy. And we'll talk about one other archetypal or prototypical child behavior that Dr. Rose coaches a parent on after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with Dr. Rose and this, this gripping account of this child who, and I got to tell you, Dr. Rose, what fascinated me is that you sort of understood, or the kid understood, that there were certain boundaries. Like he knew he could go much further at home than he could at school, and he knew deep down inside he couldn't get anywhere with you. And so the kid knew boundaries. And by the way, I, I've discovered, and by the way, there are some kids, I think we have to admit, that sometimes it's very hard for, any, for them to understand any boundaries. But I think those are the real outliers. My dad was a superintendent of school and became almost a master psychologist over the 40 years he was in education. And he said there are very few of those kids who don't respond to some proper guidance, discipline, and boundary. But there are some. Um, there, there are some real difficult, difficult cases. Uh, but let's talk about this one and what happened next. Uh, it's almost like a suspense thriller. What, what happened to this kid and to this poor mom? Well, it seemed like for about a year and a half to two years, so this kid is in first grade at that point, uh, for about a year and a half to two years, we sort of bounced along. One, one appointment he was doing well, the next appointment he was doing poorly. And then I said, so what, what is it? What's, what's going on? And uh, I realized that things were going out at home that were making mom very anxious, very stressed out, and losing her authority in her home. She's a single mom, and during one of these times, her dad, uh, who was an alcoholic, came back into their home and started living back in their home. And at the beginning, he was was, uh, doing things very responsibly, but after a little while he started to behave in a way that was disrespectful of that home. And so mom uh, started to be very anxious, very stressed out. And here I have the boy once again acting out at school, but acting worse at home. And, and a lot of this, in, in other words, has to do with the child's reaction to the parental situation. And mom, once she let the alcoholic husband into the house, had lost her grip on the things that were actually working, and that was the reason for the setbacks with the, with the boy. Yes, and the other part was mom's authority and her self-confidence as a mom floundered every time. So she second-guessed herself, would uh, get into a conversation instead of a directiveness with her son, and this uh, developing genius would take advantage of the fact that mom was no longer as sure of herself and not as authoritative. And so there, the conflict would start again. I am the boss. No, I am the boss. Mm -hmm. I am the boss. No, I am the boss. And when you start going back and forth, who's the boss? You're not the boss. Yep. That's right. (laughs) And so this happened a couple times, and I brought it up to mom, and I said, do you realize that every time that you tell me he's doing well, he's doing poorly, that there's something going on in your home. And she looked at me and she said, my life has been like that. I go from, and I, we said this together, one chaos to another. That's right. When we ourselves go from one chaos to another, our boat will push down into the deep waters, that little dinghy that is behind us, which is our kid. And that was what was happening with a developing genius. He, indeed, was a very smart boy. And I'll, we'll get to that part at the end. But every time that mom's life circumstances would, would go down deep and almost sink her, she herself would sink so much 
that her children would come down with her. So we started to talk about the other children and realized that even though her perception at the beginning was that this developing genius was the only problem in the house, now the other two children were also misbehaved, doing poorly at school. And, in fact, she said, well, I need to bring you the other children because uh, because he, the one I was, I was talking about, is not doing quite as poorly as the other two are. And so I realized, ah, this is a family thing. All three little boats are going down with the bigger boat. And so I, that's when I started really coaching Mom. And I said, Mom, this is about you. We need to help and restore you and give you the power to be Mom through all of this. And, Dr. Rose, what, is that, what does that look like? Because now you're, you're, you're a doctor, and you've now clearly gained the trust with this lady. And I, I would assume that without the trust, you can't have this conversation. And you've also gotten a confessional out of her in the sense that, you know, not many parents want to say I'm the problem. I mean, it's so easy to blame the kids, blame the school, blame the teacher, blame the alcoholic husband. But getting them to see that they're the problem, that's no duck walk, is it? No, uh, and I, I don't identify them as the problem. I, uh, I will guide the parent to see how strongly attached that child is to you. And I have them understand whenever your child is acting up, before you go and fix the problem, look at you. What's going on? Are you anxious? Are you stressed out? Are you letting the rest of the world affect your voice to your child? Mm -hmm. Then step back. Look in the mirror and see a mom, a mom who truly is the parent for this child. And that's what she did at that moment. She took a step back and she said, oh, my goodness. It's me, isn't it? And I said, yeah, this is, these are the things I want you to do. And this is what I told the mom. I said, okay, I needed to go home and look in the mirror and see how do I look like an authoritative mom a little bit more. How do I have to place my shoulders? How do I have to look at my children in the eye? Do some role-playing with yourself before you come out and build yourself into that mom. Maybe you've seen it on TV. Maybe you had a grandmother that way. But build yourself into that look before you come out. And, and at the end of, you know, maybe two weeks, three weeks, whatever it takes, you will actually start to be that mom. And I, I also explained to her, do you think that an actor and an actress that convinces us that they are that person, um, that they're Robin Hood, uh, that they're, they're Mother Teresa, is actually Mother Teresa or is actually Robin Hood? No, they have to practice it also. But this is your most important role. You have to practice that. And she did that and came back the next time and the next time, and every time was a little bit better. Well, here's the the part that almost made me cry, was that at the end of last year, she comes in, and this is the end of third year, and she said, Dr. Rose, they have identified my boy as being intellectually gifted. And I said, I knew it. <laughs> and so they're, they're going to uh, put him in these special classes that will have him possibly skip a grade. He is that smart. I said, that is amazing. So we went from first grade failing, not being unteachable. And we turned not him, but you around. And he is one of the most intelligent boys 
in that whole third grade class and probably off the charts on how intelligent he is because the, the, all the tests showed that. Well, and it's, it's funny when you first described him in the earlier segment, you called him a genius boy and you were almost intimating, you were watching the wheels turning in his head as he was quiet in the office and you thought, oh my goodness, this kid's got tremendous potential. And, and ultimately mom saw that not only she was the problem, but she was the solution. And that had to make her just feel great that she was actually getting the most out of her child because she was actually learning how to properly, properly be a mom. I loved that line. Mom, you're not the problem. You are the solution. Because if you turn it around, otherwise you're just going to be hard on yourself. And yep. you're going to say, see, I am the problem. No, you might be the problem. You might have been the problem yesterday. But from here on out, Mom... You are the solution. You are the medication. You are the therapy your child needs. And when moms understand that, they can turn their problem child at school into a thriving genius. And, you know, I wonder, Dr. Rose, and we don't have much time left, and I'll maybe ask a rhetorical question, but as you help this lady become a better mom, you may actually just have her become a better woman. Um, And maybe she gets to handle that alcoholic husband in a different way, too. Uh, Because when she can stall off that chaos to protect her children, indeed what she's doing is protecting herself. That is exactly right. I have seen a woman who, before she was difficult to employ, she now holds a steady job. Uh, Her alcoholic uh, husband uh, has been averted a couple of times. She uh, seems more sure of herself. She's able to speak better. She, she uh, dresses better. She comes into the office and she commands her sort of gentle, womanly respect. And uh, I'm so happy to see her every time. We just, we, we just get a warm uh, feeling from just looking at each other and saying hello. Well, we love these stories. Dr. Rose, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, a doctor who actually coaches parents how to be better parents. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and we love to tell all kinds of stories on our show, but some of our favorites are about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things, and even after being thrust into the limelight, insist that they were just doing what they were supposed to do. Here stand I with just such a story. On January 15th, a Thursday afternoon, like so many others, 155 crew and passengers boarded an Airbus A320 going from New York LaGuardia to Charlotte, North Carolina. Captain Chesley Sullenberger, who goes by Sully, and First Officer Jeffrey Skiles went through their pre-flight checklist just as they had done thousands and thousands of times before. The 57-year-old Sully had nearly 20,000 flight hours under his belt, and the 49-year-old Skiles, over 15,000. 
Just shy of 3.25 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 was cleared for takeoff from runway 4. Here's the captain. It was a normal uh, climb out in every regard. And about 90 seconds after takeoff, I noticed there were birds filling the entire windscreen. From top to bottom, left to right, large birds. Too close to avoid. The operative term there is large. Modern aircraft are designed, built, and tested with birds in mind. Engine companies have to prove that their turbofans can continue to produce thrust even after colliding with up to 16 birds at 250 miles an hour. But each of those birds weighs less than a quarter of a pound. The sort that flew into Sully's engines? Well, those were Canadian geese each averaging over 8 pounds, and some pushing 15. It felt like the airplane being pelted by heavy rain or hail. It sounded like the worst thunderstorm I'd ever heard growing up in Texas. It was shocking. When I felt, heard, and smelled the evidence of them going into the engines, I heard the noises, I felt the engine vibrations of the damage being done to the engines, and I smelled what I described at the time, and I still would, as a burned bird smell being brought from the engine air into the conditioning system of the airplane. It was the worst sickening pit of your stomach falling through the floor feeling I've ever felt in my life. I knew immediately it was very bad. It was almost a complete loss of forward momentum. The airplane stopped climbing and going forward and began to rapidly slow down. That's when I, ha- I knew I had to take control of the airplane. I put my hand on the side stick and I said, the protocol for, for transfer of control, my aircraft. And the first officer, Jeff, immediately answered, your aircraft. As soon as I assumed control of the aircraft, I turned the engine ignition on. So if there was any chance of a relight, we would have gotten it automatically. The next thing I did was I started the auxiliary power unit, another small jet engine that we used to provide electrical power for the airplane. No luck. I mean, we, I got the AP running, I turned the ignition on, but still no usable thrust. So what exactly do you do with 170,000 pounds of aircraft in zero pounds of thrust? You glide it. You use the forward momentum to provide the airflow over the wings to provide sufficient lift. In hindsight, Sully remembers what was running through his mind. My first thought was, this can't be happening. You know, it's disbelief. After so many years of routine airline flying, to suddenly be confronted with this dire emergency was shocking. And that was followed immediately by, this doesn't happen to me. In other words, almost every flight I've had has been completely routine and unremarkable in every way. And then my third thought was more of a realization that unlike every other flight I'd had at that point for 42 years, for 20,000 hours in the air, this flight would probably not end on a runway with the aircraft undamaged. And I was okay with that, as long as I could still solve the problem. And I was confident that I could find a way to solve all the problems until they'd finally all been solved, even though we had never specifically anticipated or trained for this event. Even though in our flight simulators at the airline, it's not possible to practice a water landing. They aren't programmed to be able to do it. The only training we'd ever gotten for a water landing was a theoretical classroom discussion. I should mention that this bird strike happened just as the aircraft was climbing through an altitude of only 2,700 feet. 
in a zero engine thrust situation, how far a plane can glide depends entirely on how high up it is. The higher up, the more leeway the pilots have for maneuvering. Sully and Skiles had awfully little leeway. Listen to Sully and air traffic control audio as they considered and eliminated two possible landing sites. And I said, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Cactus 1549. Okay, uh, you need to return to LaGuardia. Turn left heading up uh, 220. 220. Tower, stop you to park. He's got emergency returning. I quickly determined that due to our distance from LaGuardia and the distance and altitude required to make the turn back to LaGuardia, it would be problematic reaching the runway. And trying to make a runway I couldn't quite make could well be catastrophic to everyone on board and persons on the ground. And my next thought was to consider Teterboro. What's over to our right? Anything in New Jersey, maybe Teterboro? Okay, yeah, off your right side is Teterboro Airport. Do you want to try to go to Teterboro? Yes. But just as air traffic control secured permission for an emergency landing on Teterboro's runway one, Sully realized that he did not have enough altitude to glide all the way there. Turn right 280, you can land runway one at Teterboro. We can't do it. The only viable alternative, the only level, smooth place sufficiently large to land an airliner was the river. It was right to my left. I was sure I could do it. And that's not empty bravado. Experienced pilots would tell you that landing on a river isn't technically all that different from landing on a normal runway. But that's a little bit like saying making a free throw in your driveway isn't technically all that different for making a free throw at the end of a long game seven with 20,000 fans screaming at you and a championship riding on the outcome. Sully's main challenge was maintaining command of his mind and body so that he could do what he had done thousands and thousands of times before in his 30-year career. The physiological reaction I had to this was strong and I had to force myself to use my training and, and, um, and force calm on the situation. It just took some concentration. I think in many ways, as it turned out, my entire life up to that moment had been a preparation to handle that particular moment. Sully learned to fly when he was just 16 and soon enrolled in the United States Air Force Academy. There, he was one of about a dozen freshmen selected for a glider program, and he later served as a fighter pilot. After joining a passenger airline as a veteran pilot in 1980, Sully gained further experience as an instructor and accident investigator, becoming an expert in practical aviation safety. All these things would come in really handy as he lined up with the Hudson River to come in for a landing. And when we come back, more from Sully himself. Boy, I love the sound of that FAA conversation which you can hear all eight minutes the link is now floating around and it's remarkable because sully's voice is just it's so calm he sounds like the same guy who's talking to us in an interview and he's in a cockpit with geese who just flew into the engine he's got a whole bunch of passengers and he has nowhere to land the plane but a river And he acts real calm, but I've lived near and around New York City my whole life. No one ever landed a jumbo jet plane in the Hudson River before. Nobody. When we come back, 
a real-life hero, and he doesn't like being called that, as so many of them don't. Sully Sullenberger, the story, and more on Our American Stories after these messages. Exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. This is our American stories, and you definitely wanted to be flying with Sully and probably almost no one else on this particular flight at this particular time as we drive and drill back into this remarkable story from Captain Sullenberger who after realizing that he couldn't return his unpowered plane with 155 people on board to LaGuardia and couldn't make it to Teterboro, where there's a private airport that lands a lot of big planes in New Jersey, he decided he had only one option, the Hudson River. I needed to touch down with the wings exactly level. I needed to touch down with the nose slightly up. I needed to touch down... At a, at a descent rate that was survivable, and I needed to touch down just above our minimum flying speed, but not below it, and I needed to make all these things happen simultaneously. In addition to the how, the where matters a great deal, especially considering that the air temperature was just about 20 degrees Fahrenheit, and the water, ugh, the water was barely above freezing. I saw the river ahead of me, long, wide, with boats at the south end. We were trained to land in the water near other boats to facilitate rescue. That was where the airplane was headed, and that was a good place to go. Now, it was time to prepare his cabin crew and passengers. I made the brace for impact announcement in the cabin, and immediately, through the hardened cockpit door, I heard the flight attendants begin shouting their commands in response to my command to brace. Heads down, stay down. I could hear them clearly. They were, they were chanting it in unison over and over again to the passengers to warn them and instruct them. And I felt very comforted by that. I knew immediately that they were on the same page, that if I could land the airplane, that they could get them out safely. Then came the moment of truth. Hitting the water is hard. It was a hard landing. And then we scooted along the surface for some point, and then at some point the nose finally did come down as the speed decreased, and then we turned slightly to the left and stopped. This water landing tore open parts of the fuselage, allowing freezing water to rush in. Flight attendants directed everyone forward and out onto the wings. One passenger, Dave Sanderson, helped to make sure that everyone else was safe, but by the time he himself made it out, there was no more room to stand on the wings. So Dave 
jumped into the freezing water and swam to the nearest boat. The first rescue boats on scene were two local ferries, the Thomas Jefferson, commanded by Captain Vincent Lombardi, and the Governor Thomas H. Keene, commanded by 20-year-old Captain Brittany Catanzaro. They were soon joined by New York City fire and police vessels. Sully told rescuers to start with the partially submerged folks on the wings, as they were in a much more precarious position than the passengers in floating rubber rafts. Here's what Sully wants to say to all those who came to their aid. Thank you seems totally inadequate. I have a debt of gratitude I fear I may never be able to repay. The survivors, including Sully, were rushed to various area hospitals, but the captain's job wasn't done just because he was warm and dry. After bugging people for hours, I finally got the word that it was official, that the count was 155. I remember feeling the most intense feeling of relief that I ever felt in my life. I felt like the weight of the universe had been lifted off my heart. But the coming days would not be easy for any of the survivors. Even the captain involuntarily catapulted to national celebrity. The, the first few nights were the worst. When the what-ifs started, the second-guessings would come. It made sleep hard. Just uh, replaying it, you know, the flashbacks. You know, did we, did, were we aware of everything we could have been aware of? Did we make the best choices? You know, all those kinds of thoughts. One of the hardest things for me to do in this whole um, experience was to forgive myself for not having done something else, something better, something more complete. I don't know. And something else bugged Sully as every media outlet wanted to interview him and celebrate him. This entire experience, in my opinion so far, has been entirely too much about Sully and not enough about the team. And without our flight attendants of Donna, Doreen, and Sheila, we would not have had the same outcome. Still, everybody called him a hero, a term that Sully has very mixed feelings about. I don't feel comfortable embracing it, but I don't want to deny it. I don't want to diminish their thankful feeling toward me by telling them that they're wrong. I'm beginning to understand why they might feel that way. Something about this episode has captured people's imagination. I think they want good news. I think they want to feel hopeful again. And if I can help in that way, I will. According to his wife, Sully has reached Santa Claus status, meaning that someone from England can address an envelope to Captain Sullenberger in California, and the letter makes it to the right mailbox. Here's Lori Sullenberger reading one of the many letters addressed to her husband. Dearest Captain Sullenberger, Big Apple Hero, yesterday I received a voicemail from my 84-year-old father who lives on the 30th floor of a building with river views here in Manhattan. Had you not been so skilled, my father or others like him, in their sky-high buildings, could have perished along with your passengers had not you landed in the river as you had. As a Holocaust survivor, my father taught me that to save a life is to save a world. As you never know what the person you've saved, nor his or her prodigy, will go on to contribute to the peace and healing of the world. Bless you, dear Captain Sullenberger. New York loves you. This is the sort of amazing story that, had it been presented as a movie script, it might have been rejected for being far too unrealistic. But of course, it did happen. And so in 2016, Clint Eastwood, Tom Hanks, and others are bringing it to life on the big screen. 
Here's Sully on working with Tom Hanks. You know, I talked in some detail about what I was thinking and feeling and what my hopes for the movie were. And, and, uh, and I told him I was very gratified that it was in such good hands and that so many people were working so hard to get it right. You know, and uh, we, in fact, we were really amazed how many little details they asked us about. I mean, what kind of pen did you have in your pocket or what kind of watch do you wear? What do your rings look like? Or, you know, what do you wear? What did you wear when you went to the interviews with the investigators for the first time? And they said, well, it just, we have to have it be some way, so it might as well be the way it, it was. And here's Sully on Clint Eastwood. He came across as just what you see. I mean, somebody who was very at ease and a gifted filmmaker and storyteller and kind of a quiet guy and you know, unassuming. And, uh, yeah, we seemed to have a, a good rapport. And uh, he liked the stories I tell and, and how I told them. And he seemed to think that there was something there and really liked the script. And, and was really impressed with uh, what Todd had done uh, to bring to life this whole story, especially in the aftermath, the NTSB investigation, which is a, a big part of the story that people don't know. Um, you know there's, I know that uh, he told me that when he first was handed the script, his first thought was, well, who's the antagonist? And then it became clear who the antagonist was or what it was. Here's Clint Eastwood with the cast of the movie Sully and the man himself giving us a glimpse of the film. In the case of uh, Sully and that particular flight, he chanced the water landing rather than try to make an airfield that was probably impossible to make. Because of Sully, all 155 souls on board survived. People call you a hero. Show us your case, Supercell! The conflict was the investigative board was trying to paint the picture that he had done the wrong thing. Our job is to investigate how a plane ended up in the Hudson River. It's not a crash. It was a forced water landing. Sully paid the cost for that heroic act. Simulation showed that you could make it back to the airport. Not possible. I felt it go. I knew this was going to be a major investigation, that people would scrutinize every thought I had, every choice I made. When was your last drink, Captain Solenberger? Have you had any troubles at home? Having NTSB question whether or not these guys did the right thing, it's a very interesting and compelling part of the story that nobody ever heard about. What if I didn't get this wrong? What if I endangered the lives of all those passengers? My entire career was going to be judged on how I handled this 208 seconds. To this day, Sully isn't quite comfortable with all the attention focused on him, a calm leader of a crew of professionals surprised with a catastrophic bird strike only a hundred seconds after takeoff that managed to safely land on a river 208 seconds later. Well, let's hear how Clint Eastwood describes Sully. Anybody who keeps their wits about him when things are going wrong and, and can figure uh, you know, sort of negotiate through all the problems um, without panicking is obviously somebody who's uh, quite superior. Quite superior indeed, and great job on that, Stan. And again, I think what Sully was talking about is that all that training just kicked in, and it kicked in with him and it kicked in with the team, and I think what he didn't want was the light on him because in the end a whole team did this, but the light was on him. And it sounds like he's come to terms with that, ultimately. And the bureaucrats picking it apart. Boy, American people need to hear that story of people who aren't flying the plane judging the guy who is. We can't stand those people. 
in the end. They weren't there and they weren't doing it. This is Lee Habib, Tully Sullenberger. And by the way, that plane is 120 feet long, 70 tons, the A32, A320. And Sully steered it right into the Hudson, dead in, and right near the boats, right as he planned to do, and in the end, did what his training had called him to do. This is Our American Stories. <laughs> 